This is the MG Car Club podcast with Wayne Scott and Adam Sloman. This week we look at the latest news from MG Motor. We hear more of the statistics from the National Historic Vehicle Survey by the FBHVC. And we talk to Dominic Taylor Lane, MG Magnet owner and leading light behind the Association of Heritage Engineers. The MG Car Club podcast. Hello and welcome to another MG Car Club podcast. Wayne Scott with you and uh, yes, it's happened again. We're in lockdown, so that means, well, actually, you are in Kimber House this time, Adam, aren't you? Yes, I am. Uh, hello, everyone, and uh, Happy New Year and welcome back to the to the podcast. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm here at Kimber House. Um, in what feels like Groundhog Day or, or some some dodgy sequel to a film that no one really liked in the first place and we're all wondering how they made a second one or how they even made a third one. So yeah, here we are, lockdown three. This time it's personal. Yes, <laughs> indeed, yes. And uh, we are being told here in England at least, well, to stay home. That is the advice very similar to what we had back in March. So Adam, quick update on MG Car Club matters then from you. How does this affect the club and how does it affect the team down at Kimber House? So hopefully for all our members listening, uh, this won't have any impact on, on any member. Um, as we did in March, there is still a skeleton staff here at Kimber House. So we are continuing to process new member signups. If you'd like to join, if you're not a member, we're processing renewals as per normal and we're processing all the shop orders as per normal. Um, it might take us a little bit longer uh, to answer the phone because there's only a couple of us in the building at any one time uh, and it might take us a little bit longer to get your merchandise order out to you but um, we are doing everything we can to keep things um, as normal as they possibly can be while we um, race uh, the, the vaccine against the virus so yeah do please bear with us and, and thank you for your understanding and your support. The difference this time is that we are slightly more prepared in that the office has been laid out socially distanced, there's protections in place, PPE. It's a little bit different than it was back in the March stay-at-home lockdown because we have those items around us and we're a bit more well-practised at it now, aren't we? It's a phrase I hate, but it has become the new normal. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're dealing with it as best we can. Um, all of us have still got access to emails and things like that, even if we're, we're working from home. So if you do drop us an email, we'll still get back to you. Um, yeah, just just let's keep on going and let's get through it. And like you say, stay at home, stay safe and look after each other. Well, it's if we're going to have any lockdown, let's have it now in the middle of winter while MG activities are at a sort of lower ebb than they are during the summer. If we can get through all of this and get some kind of freedom back before summer, then that's all good with us because we are all itching to get out in MGs, run events and meet up with each other. But as we did in the first lockdown in March 2020, nearly a year ago already, we will stay with you here on the MG Car Club podcast to keep you entertained and informed as we find our way through. You can keep in touch with us, of course, as ever via mgpodcast.uk. Use the contact form on there or the voice recorder to drop us a message that you want, including on your podcast. We love to hear from you. Uh, looking at the news as we go into the early stages of the new year and the SMMT, this is the body that looks after the car trade in the UK, basically. Um, they've come out with some 
well, pretty worrying figures, actually. Uh, quite shockingly, they've said that it was the biggest one-year fall in new car sales since World War II, when factories were being turned over to military production. This is the Society for Motor Manufacturers and Traders, the SMMT. Uh, UK new car registrations in 2020 sink to a 30-year low. I suppose it's to be expected because most of the damage was done in the first lockdown, wasn't it, Adam, when showrooms shut? And then sales kind of boomed after that as there was sort of pent-up demand. But I don't think anyone's in a position where they really want to be shelling out for a new car at the moment. No, there's a lot of uncertainty for people financially, um, for one thing. Um, and of course, we've had this sort of roller coaster effect of, of coming out of lockdown. And like you say, there's, there's pent-up demand. And then we stop everything for a month um, back in November, uh, October, November. When the um, factories, of course, shut as well. Exactly. So it's it's a real sort of pendulum effect at the moment with with lockdowns and and then booms and you know boom and bust sort of periods um of course uh, the one company that did buck the trend um in in 2020 was was mg along with kia um mg had an outstanding year um hopefully you know we've got a bit of a vested interest in mg because it's it's the mark that we as a club support um so hopefully that can continue in 2021 but hopefully for the industry as a whole um, we can see a bit more stability and, and like I've already said, another return to normality because there's a lot of people affected by the car industry throughout the UK, be it new cars, used cars, um, you know, dealerships, workshops, all that sort of thing. It has a huge bearing on the UK economy. So we, we really do need the car industry to get back to normal along with the rest of life. Well, there was some good news from the chief executive of the SMMT, Mr. Hawes, who said that the deal that's now been done between the UK and the EU has come as a massive relief to car manufacturers and that also significant investment and government support going into the transition to electric vehicles would be welcomed as well. And hopefully that will spur them on as we hopefully get out of this pandemic. But as you say, MG doing really well. They've had a bumper year in 2020, reaching yet new markets and increasing their sales year on year and increasing their footprint in the UK. And they've got more stuff still going on as we head into the new year including as we record this today the launch of the new mg hector haven't they yeah so it's, it's interesting to see the way they're doing it in india um it kind of reminds me of um, the american car market back in the 50s and 60s when you had a new model every year um, you know, you'd have the, the, the new improvements for the new model year and the new model year was a really big thing in that market. Um, tomorrow, as we record this, they are gearing up for the launch of the 2021 MG Hector. Um, of course, last year we had the Hector Plus, which joined the, the, the standard Hector. I've seen some rumours online that say this uh, Hector may well be equipped with optional four-wheel drive, um, which would obviously be very welcome in that market and sort of marks an interesting crossover from its bigger, sort of more premium brother, the Gloucester, in that market. Um, I've seen that there may well be some interior revisions um, and some front-end tweaks. So it'd be really interesting to see what that car will look like. Um, the, the guys in India do a really good job of launching vehicles um, online. 
So um, although it will have happened by the time you hear this episode, you'll be able to go back onto their Indian uh, MG Motor India YouTube channel and watch the launch live as it was recorded. Um, and it's really good to see the way that they've embraced sort of this this digital way of, of getting new car news out to, to customers, out to the media um, and out to dealers. So, yeah, that'll be interesting to see how that's unveiled. Well, it fits well with their target demographic really doesn't it because the type of people they want to sell cars to are the type of people that hang out on social media let's be honest mm. yeah definitely and they they position themselves very firmly and very clearly in that market as a as a tech brand um with you know a big emphasis on the the technology the cars carry um so yeah be be interesting to see how that how that all comes together i said this about jaguar once and i'm saying it about mg now how bizarre is it that we're seeing not only an SUV, but a four-wheel drive with an MG badge on it. It's bizarre, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> it's it's very different to what we're, we're used to, to be fair. Um, and I know that there will be a, a hefty portion of, of, um, of MG enthusiasts that will be coughing into their, their pint of speckled hen as, as we talk about an SUV, a four-wheel drive MG. But hey, you know, it's, it's about creating cars that like you've always said it's about creating cars that people want to buy it's about creating products that that suit that market and while there are sort of four or five hundred classic mg owners in india um nipping around in in you know y tourers and midgets and mgbs and bgts and things like that um they they can't buy those cars new um the the market in india demands a product like the hector um and you know the the sales that mg india have been able to enjoy with that car and with the gloucester just go to show you know that their their marketing and their product planning is is spot on for their own market you know i've even seen people on on our facebook pages discussing the fact that they would like to be able to buy the hector and the gloucester here in the uk um so they must be doing something right absolutely um Unfortunately, like them or loathe them, SUVs, four-wheel drives, if you don't have one in your product range, you are dead as a manufacturer at the moment. That is where the big market is. That is where the money is being spent uh, across the world, really, regardless of which country you're selling into. So absolutely, they've done the right thing there. And, and we mentioned new markets, of course. We've just heard that MG are opening a new factory and in quite a surprising place as well. Yeah, so they've they've announced plans to build a, a new factory in Pakistan. Um, again, you know, it goes to show the the global footprint that they're aiming to create. Um, interestingly, there have been political tensions in India between India and China, um, and there's been a bit of a block on investment from China into India. Um, so, uh, SAIC are probably looking at, at somewhere else locally that they can they can sort of open up their product range um and yeah i i think uh, from what i've seen they are close to launching or they have launched in pakistan i think they're launching with the hs in pakistan um which will which will certainly be interesting we're seeing uh, mg return to to the republic of ireland here in europe we're seeing them open up in portugal in germany um so yeah mg is is arguably in more markets now than it's ever been before so yeah it's an exciting period absolutely and 
interesting to see how they're targeting those areas of growth as well and and the models that will match them so we'll watch that closely here on the mg car club podcast and it is that time of the year where uh, motoring journalists and news outlets come up with their top lists of the year that has just passed and often award times really uh, and uh, which ev and uh, a number of other um magazines announced their their finalists and award winners for things like this some of it's interesting some of it i don't pay any attention to at all to be honest but um mg have scooped a couple of awards haven't they yeah and that's you know that's to be encouraged they've um they've gone uh, they've gone and won the um company car and van um medium ev car of the year for the second year running with the zs uh, which is which is great, a great result for the guys from MG Motor UK, and which EV have awarded the brand new MG5 EV their best value EV award for 2021. So, yeah, that's you know that's to be encouraged. You know, I can I can still remember when back in the day the MG6 won a security award. Um, I think it was Auto Car or, or, or someone like that, or Auto Express maybe, um, and that was greeted with huge fanfare because you know someone had found um, you know some some positives with with those first steps back into the automotive market, and to see MG continue to win awards and to get good reviews and things like that just goes to show how far the products have come, how quickly they've developed, and and how. MG is now being embraced once again by the mainstream motorist and the mainstream motoring media. Well, it's important because we've always talked about the electric vehicles that MG are producing as groundbreaking in the sense that you can actually afford them. They are relatively cheap in the market and others have since followed in behind. But MG really have cornered that uh, entry level electric vehicle market. You know, not everyone's in the Tesla bracket here, you know, and these are family budget level uh, electric vehicles and that's what mg are doing well and in the same way that back in the 1930s and then in the post-war period mg brought sports cars to the masses by making an affordable sports car it's interesting to see history repeating itself in that mg are bringing electric vehicles to the masses in creating an affordable one as well yeah yeah it's um it's really exciting because you know we are being pushed um sort of by lots of different areas of the media um, and to a certain extent the government with some of the benefits that, that are available to, to, to EV purchase. Um, but like you said, you know, I, I certainly couldn't afford a, a Tesla um, or, or one of the, you know, one of the premium brands that are currently producing electric vehicles. Um, whereas, you know, I could afford a, a ZS EV, I could afford an MG5 EV. Um, so yeah, it's about opening up that market to, to, to a wider range of customer. It's a period of change in the motor industry like never seen before, isn't it? It's crazy. I mean, I, I can still remember when um, Jaguar uh, came under the Ford umbrella of their premier auto group. And you look and you see companies that were once rivals um, working together. And it's it just seems so bizarre but it's an ever-changing market you know um we look and sort of have surprise to see general motors stuff finding its way into mgs um if we would have wind the clock back to just after world war ii i'm sure people would have been aghast at um, the formation of bmc and things like that so yeah it's it's about consolidation it's about um survival of the fittest i guess and i'm really pleased and i think it's great that the mg is still part of the shake-up 
Absolutely. Well, we'll keep you up to date on things that we hear out of MG Motor across the world here on the MG Car Club podcast. It's always nice to have a look and see what's coming down the line with the modern car industry and modern MGs, as well as celebrating our historic vehicles. And it's of historic vehicles that we must talk about now because the FBHVC have been busy again compiling the results that I know lots of MG Car Club members contributed to. Uh, the results from the National Historic Vehicle Survey and what they've done this time, rather than giving all the results out in this hard-to-digest massive lump, uh, the guys have broken it down into little fact files and one of the ones that came out over the Christmas period was the environmental fact file. And really interesting stuff, this. There has been calls for some time for the FBHVC to come up with some real hard evidence and facts that gives us as enthusiasts the... <laughs> the, the the tools to argue back if you like uh, that our historic vehicles don't really contribute to the carbon output of motoring in the uk and the study which we'll post by the way on the mg car club news pages we'll send it out via the weekly newsletter as well the study starts very clearly by saying point one old vehicles are dirty smelling polluting right well no actually consider these facts and some of the facts are really interesting actually one and a half million historic vehicles on the dvla database 44 percent are registered for the road that represents around 680,000 cars there are a total of 38.4 million licensed vehicles on uk roads so already you can see the number of historic vehicles is a tiny proportion that's 680,000 compared to 38 million vehicles in total so that's 1.8 percent of all the licensed vehicles in the uk being classed as historic it's tiny and those vehicles travel on average 1200 miles every year but for that 1200 miles traveled they contribute a huge amount to the uk economy over eight billion pounds now it's incredible really uh, a total of 365 billion miles are driven on the uk roads each year so compare that to our 1200 miles that we're covering as historic vehicles that's 0.2 percent 0.2 percent of all mileage on the uk roads is down to historic vehicles we're just we're not even there we're not even touching the surface let alone scratching it um <laughs> So, um, you know, what we can conclude is total emissions from fuel used by licensed historic vehicles are low, really low, by comparison to those emitted by all other vehicles. Basically, your everyday transport cars used on the school run and commuting. So the environmental footprint associated with historic vehicles and its spending is smaller than that of normal consumer spending, which is an important point because basically the economy is reaping far more input out of far less carbon output than normal consumer spending for food for clothes for transport out in the general world there are lots of other really fascinating insights that the study has come up with here um, interesting to see how attitudes are changing for example with 35 percent of enthusiasts saying that they would contribute to a carbon offset program or would do if a suitable program was available so not only are we really low in our output we're also 
as a movement very happy to actually contribute to offsetting that tiny amount of carbon output that we are contributing so really positive stuff and it ends with a look towards the future and it says the fbhvc are working towards creating a carbon offset program that will be available to all historic vehicle owners and allow enthusiasts to achieve carbon zero for their historic vehicle use so as soon as uh, there are more announcements on that scheme we'll get the fbhvc on to talk about that more and how we as the mg car club and mg enthusiasts could contribute but it does show adam doesn't it that you know just because we're driving old cars does not make us a valid target for changing the environment no definitely i mean it's i i find this this whole debate fascinating because i've been involved in classic cars my whole life you know and as a motorist um i passed my test um 21 years ago um which is terrifying now that i stop and think about it i've just said that out loud um and i've never i've never personally faced um or seen any criticism um leveled at the, my use of an old car having an impact on the environment um and I, I think that that you know the the work the federation is doing here is brilliant because you can't argue with those facts and they they back us up um to to continue to fight for the the right to use our cars in in the way we see fit so yeah more good work done by the federation absolutely and and basically it says you know don't target us there are much bigger fish to fry out there in terms of bringing down our carbon output as a human race. Historic vehicles aren't going to gain you anything, so you might as well leave us alone to enjoy what we're doing, to contribute joy and happiness to people wherever we go, and to celebrate our transport heritage. And I think the public are agreeing. The facts back that up as well, because uh, point three on here says nearly one in three of the British population think that historic vehicles should be used and be seen rather than sit in a museum and what we need to do is to educate the other two out of those three and hopefully they'll come along on that journey with us one in three it ought to be sort of everyone really but uh, i think there's an education piece that we as enthusiasts and, and as car clubs generally can do to turn that figure around we'll keep an eye on those stories as ever here on the mg car club podcast brought to you from the mg car club who is of course waiting for you to join us it's a great family around the world of people who enjoy mgs of any age right the way from pre-war vintage beauties through to zippy cool zeds who are actually celebrating their anniversary this year as well aren't they adam Yes, it's the 20th anniversary of the launch of the Zeds this year. So uh, I think the actual date is in May. Uh, funnily enough, I think it's around my birthday. Um, so, you know, we joint celebration. Um, but um, yeah, the, the Zeds turned 20 this year. So there'll be um, a lot of celebrations throughout the year. And, you know, it's, it's great that those cars are still so beloved because I, I'm a huge fan of, of uh, the ZS in particular. So, uh, yeah, really looking forward to seeing what we can do to celebrate that. Absolutely. Alongside, of course, 60 years of the MG Midget. Well, the 60s version of the MG Midget, if you're listening with a pre-war car. Uh, if you're listening with a J2, we know, we haven't forgotten you, but you know what we mean. It's that MG Midget that was launched in 1961. And it's always nice to feature you as well. Our dear listeners to the MG Car Club podcast, and a hello to Tim Hayton, who was enjoying our new year's special and dropped us a note to say that was a really good listen and also to michael barclay 
who got in touch to suggest some subjects around parts quality for older MGs that we might want to discuss in the future. Yeah, parts quality, difficult subject when that comes up. It's an interesting and big subject that we won't uh, manage to fulfil on one episode of the podcast, but we'll endeavour to talk to some of our suppliers to get their take on parts quality and some of the challenges that they face in the coming episodes throughout 2021. So keep those suggestions coming via the contact form at mgpodcast.uk. The MG Car Club Podcast. The MG Car Club, the mark of friendship. To take advantage of our many membership benefits, access to our centres and registers, and to receive your copy of Safety Fast magazine, join us now at mgcc.go. UK, sharing your passion for MG on the MG Car Club podcast. Well, now on the MG Car Club podcast, I'm joined by Dominic Taylor Lane. Welcome to the podcast, Dominic. Thank you for having me. It's good to have you on. Now, um, you are the leading light behind the Association of Heritage Engineers. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. But first, I've got to ask you about your MG life, Dominic, and start by telling us a little bit about how your route into MGs and your MG passion began. It all started with a girlfriend. When I was at Agricultural College eight million years ago, my girlfriend, who, who then became my wife and who is still my wife, uh, took me home to, uh, to meet her parents, uh, which is always an interesting uh, thing. And uh, Mary's father was a, uh, a chap who is sadly no longer with us called Peter Tothill. Um, now, Peter had, had been into MGs um, for a very long time and was a member of uh, the Oxford Motor Club. Uh, he also happened to be a senior production engineer with BMC. Uh, he'd gone in as an, a Nuffield apprentice back in the 50s. Um, and he'd had a string of cars. He had a special-bodied PA that he built himself. Um, and his wife uh, competed a, a Downton supercharged MGTC um, in the Oxford Motor Club, um, and I duly turned up at the house in a Triumph Dolomite Sprint. So as things moved forward, Peter had a magnet um, and had actually worked on the suspension of the cars with, with Gerald Palmer in his very early career, um, and was looking for... I moved forward a few years. When he retired, um, he'd had an MGR V8 and various other motor cars while I knew him. When he uh, retired, he sold his shop in Abingdon, which, which sold car bits and pieces. And he bought himself... Uh, we actually went down to Devon to pick the car up as a parts car, came back, and he decided to restore it. So that is the start of that particular project you mentioned gerald palmer there he of course of jowett fame wasn't he it was key and instrumental in the design of the car absolutely and 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 there are some obviously the magnet was the first unibody car that 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 mg built but there are some i mean one of the ones that sticks in my mind in terms of design was the fact that it was the and excuse the anorak fact it was one of the first cars of its type to have the 
um, the door handles integrated into the chrome line on the waistline. So they kind of disappeared into the chrome line. Um, and Peter also said it was one of the best handling cars of its day. Um, so he was, he'd, he'd had one which, um, to fund the one he was rebuilding, he sold me. Um, and when I finished the one I was building, I sold that to a chap in Austria. Um, and he, he got in touch with me, said, can you tell me a little bit about the car? And I said, well, it was, it was owned by Peter Tothill and you can, uh, you can ask the magnet lot and they'll tell you about it. And so he flew from, uh, he flew from Austria. I picked him up at the coach station in Oxford and he drove it back to Austria. Wow. It's one of four magnets now in Austria um, and is much, much loved and part of his MG collection out there. Fantastic. So your MG passion actually did start with the magnet the, and the car, of course, that you still own now. It did indeed. I had, like many others, um, I had lots of mates as a teenager um, who had midgets. Um, I, I actually went to school up in the Midlands. So I, up until that point, I'd had a handful of Triumphs and minis and various other bits and pieces. Uh, but it wasn't until... Um, I met Peter and I drove the ZB that uh, I got into MGs full-time. And I, I, I also happen to have a passion for MGAs, which is obviously uh, the contemporary of the ZB saloon. So um, I did have one of those which I built. Uh, I sold that. Uh, it's now down at Weybridge. And I'm building another one. So, um, yes, I've got a bit of a got a bit of an obsession now <laughs> well i always think of the magnet as the kind of precursor to what would really in the 80s and 2000s become the sort of fast saloons the mg montegos and maestros and ultimately the zeds it was a car that was very similar to the wolseley um although there are more differences than many appreciate when you actually get into restoring one and, and looking at how they're built but um, from the outside at least they look very similar to the wolseley but ultimately far more powerful and a lot more sort of youth appeal i think oh absolutely and it's a car it's a car that 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 in its day was the was the fastest 1500 saloon in its class well that smacks me of slight marketing in that if you narrow the category down enough you'll be the best in it um but it was it was a very good um, introduction for the B series engine, which has obviously gone on to, you know, went on for decades. Um, it was, it was quite, um, it was geared for acceleration rather than long legs, as were an awful lot of cars of that era. Um, and so, yes, it went very well. It handled very well. You could get five people in it. Um, I do note from the sales brochure I have hanging up on a wall that one of the safety features on it was a deep dish steering wheel, so it took slightly longer for your head to get to the steering wheel. But um, <laughs> those are the, you know, those are the days. In terms of the, uh, in terms of the comparison to the Woolsey, as far as I understand it, the only two panels they share are the roof and the boot lid. 
it was designed to be, as you say, it was designed to be a sporty saloon. And the adverts at the time show a chap in a very nice Homburg hat who would use his ZB for the week and his MGA for the weekend. Mm, absolutely. Well, when you think about it as well, the predecessor, I guess, was the Y-Type, that big saloon uh, that looks like it's from the early 1930s and actually was built in the late 40s because of the interruption of the war. And quite a departure, really. Uh, MG had that period in time in the 50s when they sort of went from being very old-fashioned to accelerating very quickly, didn't they? You know, when you got into the 50s and you had certainly late 40s, early 50s, where it was export or die, um, the markets that they had sold to, uh, predominantly in the States, they they still wanted cycle-wing sports cars, um, which, as you say, had, had dated massively over that five years of the war, and they came out, and it was a radical departure to go to Unibody. Um, obviously, they didn't do it with the MGA, but to go to Unibody with the you know, with the ZB, and I think um, it captured the imagination. You could have, as you say, tuned-up saloon, um, a family car that you could actually have a bit of fun with. And, of course, they had that lovely 50s paint scheme, the two-tone paint, and a new piece of technology for the 1950s, semi-automatic transmission. I think they called it manumatic, didn't they? Yes, yes, <laughs> I believe they did, and Peter was never terribly complimentary of it. Um, I think when you hook up an automatic transmission to a 1500 that wasn't particularly talky and thrived on revs, I don't think it was a fantastic combination. Um, but uh, it, it, bizarrely, the car, the car that I have, the the, um, and I don't know whether the guy was just a bit miserable, but the uh, it came out of the factory. It was a ZB Veritone. Uh, it came out of the factory in black. It was in a shed in Devon, and we went down to we went down to pull it out. And the guy said, oh, it's got Goodwood history." Um, and Peter went, right, OK. And then he turned to me very quietly and said, we spent most of the 50s and 60s testing at Goodwood, so there are millions of cars that have just gone round and round Goodwood. Um, it had the most horrifically crude air vents cut into the roof, which are basically the stainless steel louvers that you put in your wall in your house. Um, had a couple of those cut in, and both of the both of the rear drums, the grease had been you know, cooked to about a thousand degrees. So it had obviously had a bit of hard at some point in its life, but uh, I haven't managed to trace any competition history. And and back then, Dominic, how was it to restore a magnet? Presumably parts have always been quite difficult to find. Yeah, we're back to the parts car thing again. Um, you know, like like an awful lot of of cars, you can you can pick and you can pick up the bits that, that don't rot so there are millions of bumpers and overriders and various other things out there ready to be re-chromed but it's the the zb is actually quite a complicated structure especially on the especially on the sill um it was well over engineered at the time but like other cars that i've done in the past like uh, sunbeam alpines and things when you have a sill that is a number of sections um, you have to cut all the good ones out to get to the bad ones. Um, so it, it, um, I mean, Peter worked on it 
Um, it was an excuse to be in the garage, if I'm perfectly honest. But he worked on it for he worked on it for six years. Um, but he was determined that um, it was going to be um, as good as it could be. So he had. Um, he'd 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 taken all the suspension off and made new tie rods and all that kind of things because at the time those weren't available. Um, and then he also had a new wiring loom made for it that included indicators and uh, he put seat belts in it and all that kind of stuff. Um, so it it was a complicated uh, thing to do, but he was a great fan of if you could, repairing the panels that you had. One, because you had to, but two, because, as I found with MGA restoration, the pattern stuff very rarely fits. So it's, it's actually um, a great example of sustainability, really, because the bulk of it stayed exactly the same. You're just, you're just patching in bits. The interiors always amaze me on the magnet, because that... A very curiously shaped dash with those sort of uh, dials, obviously trying to uh, depict the MG logo. But it's it's always looked to me a little bit like it was kind of fashioned out of bits of wood that people had lying around, heavily covered in varnish. <laughs> is, is it really as crude as it looks from the outside? When I took mine off, yes, it is made up of many, many, many bits, most of which under the veneer are not of the finest quality. I got mine restored, um, which has its plus and its minus points. I had um, a company fairly local to me. Um, I took it in and he quoted me a price, uh, and um, which which he cursed um, thereafter. But he did, he put an American walnut top on it for me and came in and said, don't ever bring me another one of those ever again. Um did an absolute beautiful job, but he'd done it to such a such a fantastic standard that every time the sun comes out, I can't see anything. <laughs> when you look at those 50s cars, whether it's the bits of wood they've used to put the dashboard together or um, the chrome-plated Mazak uh, on the number plate light, you know, things were being, things were being built to a price. Obviously, the one thing that is unique to that car is that octagon top shaped speedo the mechanical bits and pieces in those are not the greatest but as you know there are some fantastic specialists out there who can actually build them rebuild them a whole lot better than they were in the first place there is a charm about the interior of the magnet because it always reminds me of a kind of 50s radiogram you know when you see those in antique shops just beautiful that little speaker grill in the middle there it's fantastic and the pieces of rope to shut your door. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's why we love them. That's why we love them. Um, so, obviously, you're, you're seen out and about at events up and down the country dominating your magnet. How does it perform on modern-day roads? Does it get on okay these days? And what have you done with it since? Um, well, this is, this is where I can uh, either get praised or stuff thrown at me. It's always struck me as a car that could use a bit more power. Um, and one of the reasons Peter decided to restore that car is that when we pulled it out, it had an HRG Derrington crossflow head on it. That was kind of the reason it didn't get taken apart because the body was as rotten as a pear. Um, 
Peter took the head off, which, being aluminium, was not in a great state because it had been sitting there. So that duly went off to um, that went off to Payne's up at Whitney to be rebuilt, and then I had it um, I had it ceramic um, pressure injected because it was going slightly porous, as aluminium does. Um, but the um, the engine that's in the magnet now is actually a a five bearing um, a light and balance five bearing eighteen hundred engine, um, and it has the MSX crossflow head on it, which was basically an American version of the Derrington pattern. Um, so, at the moment, we have. Um, Anorak fact, we have an 1800 five-bearing engine with a ported cross-flow head, uh, Derrington exhaust pipe, Derrington anti-roll bar, five-speed gearbox, and about 120-ish horsepower. So it goes all right. Yeah, fantastic. Some poke that it deserves on modern-day roads, I guess. Peter's mantra was always, it's better to stop first before you go. Yes. Um, <laughs> so... I did I did convert the front of it using um MGA discs. Um so it goes and it stops um and it keeps up with modern traffic and you can sit in the motorway uh on the motorway in it uh which with the four speed is doable but but it does get quite noisy. Well, at least they are period upgrades in the sense that if you owned one in the 50s and you'd own it a few years these are the sorts of bits you could have bought then and fitted to your magnet so it's not like you've fitted a higher booster engine into it or something like that they are they are sort of period fitments aren't they well as i say it's the basis of the original block that would have gone in there anyway but there was a uh, there was a guy in america um who did all the engineering that allowed you, he he designed a, what is effectively a sandwich plate that goes between the bottom of the block and the sump that allows you to hang all the bits of kit on that you could have hung off an early engine, which the five bearing didn't allow you to do. So he came up with this adapter plate very cleverly, um, which... I won't say it's simple, but it's a darn sight easier to to fit that engine with this adapter plate. Um, and it was it was then an engineer called Trevor, who is again sadly no longer with us, took um, took this particular pattern and the pattern for the Derrington anti-roll bar mounts um, and had them manufactured and sold them within the ZB register. So. They are period parts that have been remanufactured effectively. Well, that's the great thing about the MG Car Club and the support that it gives for the mark. Its ability to get parts like that and share knowledge between the members that keeps these cars on the road. And have you th- seen a, a difference in a attitudes towards the magnet over the years, Dominic, in the way that it gets received at shows and the way journalists write about them now and, and generally how they're seen by the public? Do they get a bit more stardom than they used to, perhaps? Absolutely. Well, one of the things, one of the thing, um, the mine is actually um, a non-standard colour, and that wasn't a um, that wasn't a deliberate decision by Peter at the time. It was the fact that he gave the paint sprayer a paint swab, who went to the paint shop and picked the nearest colour. Um, 
which was a bit daft. But anyway, the colour it's painted in is a Fiat baby blue colour. I've also used it for Sporting Bears Dream Rides at Carfest and various other events, and it always goes down very well. Um, one thing I was quite keen to do um, was I got in touch with Alistair Clements at Classican Sports Car, who owns one of these cars, um, and asked him why I hadn't seen him in it. Uh, and he said the clutch had gone. And we happened to be speaking at the Classic and Sports Car version of the flywheel up at Vista Heritage. Um, and I said, well, come along and have a chat with the guys at the Heritage Skills Academy. Um, and they they said to him, well, bring the car along. We'll get the apprentices to sort all the issues out. And you can write about it. So... Um, he brought his car up to Heritage Skills, and I think we had four or five months' worth of articles in Classic and Sports Car on the apprentices sorting out his magnet. Um, so that was very useful. And then John Simpson of Practical Classics bought one. Um, so, uh, yeah, they are definitely getting out there. They're definitely getting better known. Um and the more we can get them out there um, in terms of visibility, uh, which they are doing with Practical Classics and Classic and Sports Car, is just fantastic. Certainly always strikes me as a car that I've always been a fan of, but has sort of stayed under the radar. But in recent years, you just start to see them in the media and taking centre stage at shows just a little bit more, which is a great thing for all magnets, really. I think it's, I think it's great because it allows... It allows family ownership. You know, two-seaters two seaters are absolutely fantastic, um, and I'm a big, big fan. But if you, if you are trying to um, attract a family audience and to get, to get families involved and to be able to justify an old car, um, I think that is where four-seaters come into their own, especially, especially if you can make them a little bit safer you know families now wouldn't dream of putting kids into the back of a car without any seat belts for instance um so i think if we if we're prepared to um you know adapt and and and, and go a bit more family friendly then i think they're perfect for the job mm. absolutely perfect yeah fantastic from owning a magnet to the association of heritage engineers how did that journey take place dominic and how did you get involved with that side of the historic vehicle world again actually it comes down to uh, i reference him quite a lot but it comes down to my late father-in-law um i i um had managed to talk my youngest son um who's been involved with old cars well he didn't really have a choice um <laughs> i managed to um persuade him to uh look at going to the heritage skills academy having had a chat with john pitchforth up at the nec um so he was amongst the first cohort um at the heritage skills academy and I happened to be there and I was talking to a chap called Mark Hughes, who was then the general manager at P&A Wood, the Rolls-Royce dealership, um, who is in his 30s. And he said, my biggest issue um, is that, that I feel that an awful lot of skills are going to die with the people who have them. 
Um, and at the moment, there is no apparent kind of general industry interface that will allow those people to share skills even if they wanted to. Um, and I said, well, that sounds like a, a thing because I've been thinking that um, Peter sadly died when Oliver was about 11. So that, you know, years of 60 years of experience quite literally died with Peter before he got a chance to pass it on. Um, so I thought, well, you know, there needs to be there needs to be that capability. We need to be able to promote hand skills as 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 a career. Um, you know, we need to get young people involved, and and the only the best way to get them involved is to get them invested um, in the industry in a way that they could actually make a living. And then very very quickly, once I started making noises. Um, I had a couple of meetings with uh, Tamalee Newbury down at Brooklands, who gave me some very good ideas, and we started putting the board together, uh, which includes people like Lady Judy McAlpine and Alan Wynne of Brooklands and, and a number of other quite kind of high-profile people, really, just to give us a bit of influence. And it moved along, and then I started getting phone calls from people who did aeroplanes and trains and boats and various other things, saying, actually, we've all got the same problem. And more recently, I started talking to people like the Heritage Crafts Association, saying, we need to combine forces here, really, in some way, shape or form. So we've put together a thing called the Sustainable Skills Network. There is an assumption, I think, uh, amongst certain certain people that young people just aren't interested in spanners and tinkering with cars. And they don't, they'd rather be on an iPad than spend their time learning how to do engineering with their, with their hands. Do you think that's an unfair assumption these days? It is given the young people I've met... I think you have to, where we have to come from as a, and I don't put you in this because you're a young man, but where the, where the older members have to, have to get on board with this is the fact that we have to show and prove to young people that what we are doing can be a part of their future. Um, they're being bombarded with the fact that people are making millions on the internet um, which, as we all know, is not actually the truth. Um, but if 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 we can say if we can say and prove to young people that what we are doing and the skills that they will learn will provide them with a future, then they will get involved. And if you can then give them inspiration, which is what car clubs are absolutely fantastic at, but you can. You can give them the inspiration and you can give them access. Then I think we've got a very strong future. The issue at the moment is that unless you are lucky enough to have a parent who's into it or a friend who is into it, access is incredibly difficult. And as talking to someone the other day with modern properties, for instance, you don't have the space to hoard cars or hoard parts, uh, all, all the things that we've been allowed to do. We need to prove to them that, that we are a part of the future and not something that can be assigned to the past. 
And do you think this ever-impending doom of 2030, as we keep getting told, um, of motor manufacturers having to switch to all-electric vehicles, do you think that has, has, has made the challenge larger in the sense that people don't see internal combustion engine cars as having a future and a career? I think the much-used analogy uh, that is probably closest to my heart is the fact that once they bought in internal combustion engines, they didn't shoot all the horses. Um, I think given that the average um, average mileage, according to the, uh, according to the Federation survey, is about 1,500 miles a year, uh, in terms of national emissions, we are a speck, an absolute speck, but we are a very obvious speck to attack. Um, and I think if we can, uh, if we can convince younger generations that, that the skills that our industry can teach them, it doesn't mean they have to go and work on cars in the future. It means they can work on anything. But if, if we can use cars to equip them with the set of skills, then we do away with this perceived guilt, um, that they might have that these things aren't aren't green but i would argue that heritage engineering in particular has been sustainable since the very first wooden wheel fell off the very first wooden car and and a bloke called ug had to fix it <laughs> well it is the ultimate in repurposing and recycling at the end of the day isn't it you know the energy's gone into producing a machine or a component and all you're doing is making sure that it lasts and is maintained long into the future and actually long beyond its intended life by its original manufacturer in many cases Absolutely. The great thing is, when you actually marry up modern technology and heritage, passion and engineering and skills, and you bring those two things together, that's when some really exciting stuff happens. On a small level, here we are talking about old cars on a podcast, and we have now an audience of six, 7,000 people listening to us, uh, able to share in this conversation where normally we wouldn't have had access to that kind of audience. And then on another level, you've got the businesses who are using modern laser cutting, CNC machines, computer modeling, 3D printing to ensure things like blower Bentleys can remain on the road. And actually, in many ways, parts for those really old vintage cars are easier to manufacture now than they ever have been. And it's about as you say, opening your eyes to the future whilst seeing how you can apply that to our passion of the past. prime example of that was Oliver, my youngest son, was working on the, uh, the Formula Ferguson um, four-wheel drive F1 car that Sterling Moss won at Aintree in, uh, the old Tony Rolt car. And the gearbox decided to destroy itself. So they, they took it all apart unique gearbox um the parts were 3d scanned they were reconstructed and they were remade but they were remade with the same level of wear that the original cogs had so that it didn't stress any other part of the gearbox which is just as you say perfect marrying up and if you were to have done that by hand i think you'd have struggled to justify the costs yeah no, that's absolutely it. That's where the future must lie. And, of course, 
by using modern engineering principles and applying them, we can also continue to keep these vehicles on the road in a sustainable way. Um, we also need the businesses to give them a job. Apprentices now are young people who are actually deliberately taking the apprentice route as opposed to going to university. And over the last 25 years, apprenticeships became a bit of a laughing stock in that it was it was an opportunity to to put people that you couldn't think of anything else for them to do and it got a bad reputation because of that but now speaking to a lot of a lot of young people that I, I speak to they are they would have been more than capable of going to university and getting the qualifications to do that and it's fantastic to have those kind of people going into our industry and that's why I'm I'm really quite positive for our industry moving forward because not only do we have skilled craftspeople in there, we have the leaders and company owners in there as well. What do you think are the biggest challenges that it's going to face our industry? Relevance. It's finding our place. If people are genuinely interested in a sustainable future economy, then it has to be based on less consumption and more repair. If we can get to a point in the not-too-distant future, where we are pushing our sustainable credentials, which we've already got. It's just people people don't see that, and we are up against other organisations with specific agendas. Um, but I think we're in a very good place to, to fight our corner. Thanks for coming on and talking to us, Dominic. It's been great to hear about uh, your story behind your MG Magnet and also about the Association of Heritage Engineers. So, uh, Dominic Taylor Lane, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. And it's been, it will be really nice to do something actual. Yes, <laughs> definitely. Get out to some events and see each other <laughs> once again. MG Podcast. Safety Fast, the magazine of the MG Car Club. Get your copy now by joining us at mgcc.co.uk. Well, as we head into 2021, already this year is looking to start as challenging as the old one ended. But through the medium of this podcast, Safety Fast magazine and all of the information we'll share for you via mgcc.co.uk, we'll keep you, the MG community around the world, together and in touch. We'll do it together, won't we, Adam? Yeah, definitely. It's um, like you said, it's going to be a challenge, but we will get through it. We will overcome. We're here for you. We'd love to hear any stories you've got, any any feedback you've got, any messages. Do keep in touch with us. Um, take care, stay safe, and we'll see you next week. Yep. See you then. Subscribe to receive new episodes of the MG Car Club podcast at mgpodcast.uk.